Uh, we are continuing here in our, our, this series of questions which Jesus asks, um, which we have a rather long question here this morning, which goes like this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And of course, this is the question that Jesus asks in the middle of the parable about the Good Samaritan. So that's the story we're going to look at this morning. Um, it's among the more uh, commonly known parables that Jesus told. Um, it is, um, it is one that we have talked about here uh, fairly frequently as we have sought to love our city uh, well. Um, I know that our deacons read it and study it uh, every year when they do training through Tim Keller's Ministries of Mercy. And no matter how many times um, I read it, you know, it is read, I think it is so simple, so clear, um, so convicting, um, and purposeful all at the same time. So uh, it is, we just... We pray that the Spirit would use it uh, this morning in in each of us. So uh, with all that being said, let me actually do that. Let me go before the Lord in prayer, um, and then we will jump in. Dear Jesus, we can read these words on the page, um, and we are utterly dependent on you for them to to their gravity and their truth to to sink into our hearts. Uh, We ask that you would use your spirit, send your spirit this morning, and you would help us to do that, that we might hear and see and be moved uh, by your grace, uh, that we might love the way that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. I did pray before I read it, but now now that it's been blessed properly, let's go to our passage and we'll read it. Um, uh, This is from Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And which of these three do you think? proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, There are a number of ways that we can, you know, use this and parable in a number of ways that has been used, um, you know, in the past. Uh, It can be an aid to us to uh, teach us uh, or even help us to recover our Christian calling um, towards mercy ministry and the poor and any that are in need around us. Um, it can be used just as a practical guide um, of what do those things look like. Uh, and we're going to hopefully touch on all of those things as we get in here. Um, 
But there's an interesting context that this whole thing is set in, which you might have caught when we read it, is that it's about a lawyer who wants to be justified. Um, And that is set in a context of a desire of his own in order to inherit eternal life. And I think that what what the guy really is asking is not just one of practicality, Uh, but it is one of time. He essentially is asking, what time is it now in the trajectory of history? And according to that, how do I fit um, in the change of one age to another? Um, Essentially, he's, he's basically asking, how do I make sure that I am on the right side of history and not the wrong side of history? And that's a phrase that we hear and we use all the time. I, mean, I use it with trepidation, just you know, depending on what whatever that might mean. But that, that literally is what he asks, and I'll show you what what you know why that is. So he uses this phrase, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" Which is familiar to us, but in Luke's gospel here and at that time, it was a little bit more unusual. And he's getting it from the last book of the uh, book of Daniel, the last chapter of the book of Daniel, in Daniel twelve two, which says this. At that time shall rise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, there it is, and some to shame and everlasting contempt." And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this is a, he's referring back to an apocalyptic text, and at that time, in the intervening period, the scholars of the day came to understand this as that there would be a change in an epoch at some time. There would be the old ways, the old um, history, the way the world worked, but there's a new one that would be coming. Um, and it would probably be associated with the Messiah and what he would bring in, and there would be this new life um, that certainly would extend uh, into everlasting life, but it would also be something that would be manifest in real life on earth. And so what he is asking is, how do I make sure when the change of the ages come that I'm with the good guys and I'm not with the bad guys, that I'm going to continue and be counted as a part of the new age to come and I'm not going to fade away with the old age. And of course, you know, step out of the apocalyptic genre here. That is something I think that is very, very familiar and just in our, our world right now. There's a sense in that, um, that things change. One generation passes and another one comes. Um, and we either judge or will be judged according to whatever the ones who come after us, you know, look at us and think. And we don't want to be found out. We don't want to be found lacking. We don't want to be found uninformed. We don't want to be caught saying things um, that are um, going to be deemed uh, unworthy later on. We don't want to be caught parenting in a way that's antiquated, you know, any of these things. We want to be counted among the good guys. We don't want to be exposed to shame. Uh, we want to be, to, for the things that we do and we care about, we want them to last uh, and to be really good um, and important. Uh, We don't want to find out at the end that we've been working for the bad guys the whole time. Um, So you kind of get a feeling of what what is going on here. Um, He he wants to know that from Jesus, how do I make sure that I am on the right side of history, that what I'm doing is good and right and that it's going to count when the time comes? 
And Jesus, um, in his in his way, anytime you ask Jesus a question, he immediately starts telling a story with no no segue. Then you know there's trouble uh, foot. Uh, he immediately launches into this story uh, rather than answering the question. And I think what he's what he's going to do is he's he's first. He's going to give, okay, so you want to be counted as a part of the new epoch that's coming. This is what it's going to look like. And he's going to launch in here and he's going to give, paint a picture as that is this, if this is what you want and if this is really what you're asking, um, then, this, then this is essentially uh, what you're asking for. And so I think in the first place, this passage is giving the ethics of the new age to come. Um, and they look like this. Let's just jump in and, um, and look at the story, um, which is, again, is probably pretty familiar to, to you. Um, so there's this guy. He's traveling um, down a road from the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a notoriously dangerous uh, road, very barren, a lot of rocks, lots of places for uh, robbers to hide. This would have been a very common occurrence um, of going down this road for somebody to be uh, robbed. It's very steep. Jerusalem's almost 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho is almost 1,000 below sea level. So it's dropping really fast, really, really treacherous. Um, And then, lo and behold, this guy, um, he, you know, this is probably the fear um, that everybody has um, when going down this road. And we have a priest who sees him and passes. We have a Levite who sees him and passes. And then the Samaritan comes along. And he just does something extraordinary. Um, he, demonst- he is demonstrating in his character that this is what the kingdom of God is going to look like. Uh, when, you look, when you're looking for it and you want to be a part of, this is what it's going to look like. And I just want to draw a couple of points out of this, of, of what we see. Um, in the first place, everything the Samaritan does, it is incredibly concrete and tangible. It is not coming from the world of ideas alone, but it is coming from where the world of ideas actually meet meaningful action. Um, he sees the guy. He has compassion on him. He moves towards him. He binds up his actual wounds. He puts him on his own donkey. He spends real, tangible money on him. Um, he invests his time in him, all of these kinds of things. These are, like, these are concrete actions that this guy, um, that this guy takes on. And if we back up and look at how this um, came about, um, that this guy is wanting to test Jesus, and he's asking him again, you know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you know, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he quotes um, these two places from Deuteronomy 6 and um, from Leviticus 19. These are the greatest two commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. Um, and then having answered correctly, then he desiring to justify himself, he says, well then, who is my neighbor? So you see, he's taking a, an idea, which is a true idea, and then he's moving it into the realm of an intellectual puzzle in order to draw lines um, that are going to be beneficial, beneficial to him. He's probably asking this because there was a debate at the time among scholars about, you know, what does it actually mean um, to fulfill the law? But in that, do you see the juxtaposition in between the way that this guy is going about um, fulfilling the law and the way that the Samaritan is? We got one guy, on the other hand, who's involved in a philosophical debate 
about uh, what is good and right and proper. And then we have another guy who is involved in no debates. He just gives the stuff that he has, and in very tangible and concrete terms, he serves this guy. And this has been what the law has been calling for all along. Like, I mean, you read through the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's not saying the sacrifice is not important, but it is saying that the religious stuff that we do, if divorced from the actual Monday through Friday everyday action, is not what the law is actually requiring. Um, This is, I mean, to love God and to love neighbor. If we looked at in Leviticus 19 when it says to love neighbor, it starts listing things that sound like the Ten Commandments of do this, do this, don't do this, do this. It is very immediate and concrete. And I think in reflecting on this this week, this was probably the most convicting um, part uh, for me. Just because it is just, especially uh, among um, which we are uh, in here, very educated people. It is just so easy to analyze and to consume information and to draw, you know, lines intellectually um, and be in the right place intellectually, and then get absolutely nothing done, like at all. Uh, there is no actual concrete, you know, action that comes out of it. I, I thought about this in terms of, um, so I, you know, recently, the last couple of years, I've put, you know, been interested in putting a lot of work into reading about environmental ethics and the impact on our lives on the environment and stuff like that. And I will do that while drinking coffee out of a K-cup after I just flipped on all the lights around me in order to be, you know, comfortable and like, and I, I mean, I, when I look at myself, there literally has been almost no change. <laughs> like all of this head knowledge has done absolutely nothing. And I just use that as an illustration. That's just, that's, it's just common what we are like, what we are like. But the thing that's so jarring about the Good Samaritan is that his, his hearing and his doing, you know, James chapter one, they are one in the same thing. That the law of God is not just a concept. It's not something that just stays in the moral universe uh, of where I get boxes checked or whatever, that it actually invades all of the, the mundane, concrete details of life. Uh, there's a radical union about it. That's one thing that we see about it. It's very concrete. It's not just an intellectual thing. Uh, the other one here we see is that of these ethics of the new kingdom is that the boundaries of how people are distinguished from one another in the new kingdom are completely obliterated, uh, that there are none. It starts in this way, it says, you know, in, in what we have here where it just says a man, if you read this in Greek, it's a little bit more stands out, is it just say a certain man, like very intentionally nondescript. Um, and, so, and, you know, you kind of see that Jesus is starting to poke on the man in, in the very beginning. I'm not going to tell you if he's a Jew or Gentile. I'm not going to tell you if he's rich or poor. Um, this is just any old human being. Uh, this is who we're talking about here, uh, the object um, of mercy. And then, of course, we got these other characters involved here. We have a priest and a Levite who we might think, or what's the difference between those two? If you know your Bible, then the priest came from the tribe of Levi, and they probably were just two different classes. If you were a priest, you came directly from the lineage of Aaron, and you would serve um, you know, religious ceremonies in the temple and such like that. If you were a Levite, you were from the general family, a little bit of a lesser priest, but still had duties in the temple, um, distributing alms and stuff like that. But regardless, these are two people of very privileged birth. They didn't get this because they were good at the job. They got it because they were born into this family. 
And because of that, they, had, they carried a weighty religious significance to them um, just by their birth. And you can read, um, and a lot of commentaries will highlight even different phrases that people would say. Um, it was very common to say that you are to do good to people who are good, to sinners, you should ignore them and basically have nothing to do with them. And so there's a sense in which this might not have been um, all of that strange uh, for them to walk past. Like there's a sense in which these are privileged people who probably have better stuff to do. We need them to serve in the temple. Our whole family identity, uh, people identity depends on this happening and doing right. So let them go. Someone else can handle this work. So we have anybody. We have the privileged people with an important job. And then who do we have? We have a Samaritan who, if again, you might know, are they're not relations are not good. Um, between the Jews and the Samaritans. The history goes back hundreds of years um, of just nasty nasty stuff um, going back and forth between the two. um, Hated hated people. And so you see what Jesus is doing? He's taking all of these structures that make up life, that put people in their place, of who has value, of who doesn't have value. He's bringing in national politics into into it. He's bringing race into it. And he's using it to just, you know, poke at this guy um, to draw out to see how life is made up based on these categories we put people in and then to, to blow them up. And that these don't matter. When it comes to extending mercy, the only issue of what it looks like in the new kingdom, in the new kingdom that's coming is that the only issue is the sense of compassion. It's the humanity um, of the one in need and the sense of compassion that reaches out um, and shows mercy. So these are two characteristics we see here. It's very concrete and immediate, and the boundaries that divide people, how we put people in categories, they are completely um, obliterated. Um, And so what Jesus is saying in this, and then what does he say? He asked the guy, um, so who's the one who was a neighbor? And you you get the twist on the question here. So the original question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus finished it was not with not an identity question, but an active question of verb. So who do you think was a neighbor to this guy? So being a neighbor is a verb. And the guy gets it correctly, that this is the one who showed compassion. That it doesn't have anything to do uh, with the identity of the person. It has everything to do with the activity of extending compassion. Neighbor is a verb. It's not just a noun. And then what does he say to the guy in the very end? He says, when the guy gets it right, he says, yes, that's when I ask compassion, then what? You go and do likewise. And what a powerful phrase this is. Um, and I want us to just sit and chew on that and transitioning, you know, out of this point is how are we supposed to receive this phrase? You go and do likewise. Um, there's a couple different directions. Like one, we would say intuitively, I mean, we recognize the Samaritan is a good guy. Like, He's the one that we should emulate. Um, and he's probably courageous. Like, good for this guy that he did that. Uh, we recognize that these are good ethics, that these are, these are good things to do. And, but then at the same time, yeah, I think, yeah, I hope I'm not reading into this, but you can almost hear the tone of voice um, in the guy that I, I doubt he's all that excited in making the confession of who is, who is the one who showed compassion. He won't even say the, you know, that he's a Samaritan. He just you know, calls him the guy who um, you know, extended mercy. Um, he, he challenged Jesus and lost. 
So there's a sense in which that, you know, that phrase, go and do likewise, we recognize it as a good ethic, but there's something that is also convicting about it too, that it's a challenge um, to the very validity of the one who is asking the question. And this is the second thing it does. So Jesus is laying out, here's the ethics of the new kingdom. You want to be part of the new kingdom? This is what it's going to look like. And go and do likewise. After just seeing that, one of the things that this inevitably does is it exposes the logic and the character of the old kingdom in a lot of ways. Uh, For one thing, it is the old age um, is one that is defined by um, anxiety, a sense of self, of self-preservation, of legalism to a degree um, in order to make that in, to make that work, self-righteousness which ultimately leads to things like judgment, um, creating boundaries around these people and that people. Um, by giving the, just what it, the, this, the ethics of the new kingdom, it becomes a bright light that shines directly on even the motivations of the one asking the question. And I do want to get, we're going to get in a third point to why this is good and why these are good instructions for us to go and do likewise. But it's important that we notice that Jesus says them as a challenge to the one asking. And part of his motivation here is to expose the guy's inner underlying motivations of why he wants to know um, who is his neighbor and is he going to be in um, this new kingdom or not. And I think that, you know, for us, I mean, just sit here and chew on this yourself. You know, when you look at the behavior of the, of the Samaritan, I think it convicts in a couple different ways. One, it convicts um, our past actions. Um, for me, I, I hate, well, ask my wife, I hate being interrupted. I don't know why. It just makes me crazy. Like, it's, you know, there's something about being focused on a task and taking a lot of mental effort to get there and to get focused and in a groove and then to be interrupted and to feel out of control knowing that now this is going to take me forever to get back into focus again. Like, it just, that's in my fleshly nature, that's one of the things that just gets all over me. I would prefer to be absorbed in the thing that I'm doing. I also have four kids, um, and so <laughs> this, is <laughs> this is a very common occurrence. Um, um, but it, there's just something admirable to me about this guy. I don't know what he was doing, but he is on a, he's not only has something to do, he is on a dangerous road and he's completely free. He allows himself to be interrupted. He, he shifts his whole day just to take care of this guy. He drops him off at the end. He goes and takes care of his business. He even tells the innkeeper he's probably going to come back another day. Like he's shifted his whole schedule around um, taking care of this guy just because he was there. That's very convicting to me. Um, there could be all kinds of other ways. I think, you know, one of the things about him is that he just, he saw the guy there. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know this exactly, but you almost get the sense that this priest and Levite, that this was just kind of normal. Um, that there would be, you know, people on the side of this road who might be beat up and, you know, you've got things to do and you've got to, you've got to go, um, take care of them. They were part of a social structure like it, this was just probably a very normal thing for them to do. Um, but the Samaritan, he, he saw, like that's convicting. Um, you know, there's an expense of money. There's, he, he, he enters into a relationship uh, that's going to be sticky. Um, 
I think we most, when we really think about it, we know deep down that any, any relationship of help is not all that simple. Um, you think about, like, if you see someone on the side of the road and, you know, you, you, you know, or it was just, say, in a parking lot and, you know, they're obviously having trouble with their car and whatever, and that voice, so maybe I should give them a help or whatever. But there's always kind of that question, like, how long is this going to take? Um, and what else, like, what, what if the first fix doesn't work um, and then you're stuck with them? Like, you know, then you've got to go and, you know, maybe help get a tow truck, and, like, you can't just leave them, like, you know, at that time. Um, that, and that's just a silly example. But, like, anyone who's really struggling, that there are just so many layers, you know, in the mix um, that it's very difficult and it's very sticky. Um, this is convicting. This guy just jumped in and he didn't care. So, and a lot of our just present past attitudes is convicting as well. But even just looking forward, so we, if we say, okay, go and do likewise, so exactly how, what are we going to do? So how much danger is appropriate like for us to put ourselves in danger in order to ha- handle somebody else? I don't exactly know. Um, what if I do this for some day and there's someone else the other day? Like how many people do I give all my denarii to uh, when there's a whole bunch of people um, to go around? Um, what if this guy like is a notoriously unsafe and he's just going to get himself in trouble again like after this? Like, there's just all kinds of different layers of um, complexity, even if we want to try to fulfill this in a way that is going to justify us, that is going to actually solve this, you know, situation so we can count ourselves as a success check. It is very, very complicated. And what Jesus is doing in showing this story is he is blowing up um, paradigms of saying that if, if your motivation is to be counted according to the new kingdom, and then what, then what you are trying to do here that is just not going to work on your own power. Um, that, that all, of, all of that, you know, any effort you can put in, any wisdom is just going to be found out. It's going to be convicting in the past, and it's, you're just going to find yourself drowning uh, by trying to fix it and go into the future. So what do we do with that? And I think there's another, there's another element here, and there's a reason why anyone that Jesus opposes, the reason why he is opposing them is he is trying to show them their heart, not so he can put them down. But he is drawing something, an inner, an inner attitude out so that it can be in the light and so that it can be seen so that Jesus can do the very thing that he came to do in the first place. And that if you follow, so we're following one of his opponents here in all the verses around it, uh, what he's talking about earlier in, in verse 10, he's talking about his followers. He's talking, he sends out 72, which are disciples that he has gathered and he has taught. Um, and he says, you know, he's saying this, um, you know, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. And then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. That's referring to himself. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear. And did not hear it. 
What's the character of these people who Jesus has actually accumulated and who, who are living as a part of the new age that is also breaking in now? They've been invited by the one agent of change that there is, purely by the fact of his invitation. He has been revealed to these people um, and by his father, and he has invited them to himself, uh, purely by grace alone. That's it. And when we zoom out even further and we remember the context of what Jesus is doing now, the way that he is loving these people, it is just so concrete. As if you look at the quote, I, I put this quote in here several times from N.T. Wright in the beginning of um, your worship folder here. Um, I just, I, I love this. He says this, the love of God, for example, is not just an abstract idea. It happened on the cross. The forgiveness of God is not just a nice theory. It happened when Jesus was hanging there with nails in his hands and his feet. That Jesus is the one who is on the move right now where there is no separation between concepts or ideas or actually the follow-through and the action of what he is doing. He is here to give up his life for people um, who do not have any business being part of this new kingdom so that he could invite them in by grace alone. He is the agent of change. He is the one who is ushering the old age into the new age. And so the only thing really to be included here, um, it is not some kind of self-justification, some kind of way to justify ourselves. It It is just to be given a gift, to be invited in, to enjoy it. And yes, the guy was right in some ways that it does require a justification to be a part of this new kingdom, but it is not one that he was going to find for himself. That it was actively being poured out for the guy. And one of the reasons why Jesus wants to expose what he does, especially when we try to use the law or we try to use some kind of tactic to say, I'm better than this person, that person, whatever. Then by the mercy of God, he doesn't make the standard less. He actually raises it. So we see the the true point of what Jesus, the whole law, the prophets were, were pointing to in the first place was this just full and unbridled love of God. But that was going to be provided by him, our Savior, Jesus, and not by us. That's the ticket. That's the important thing for this guy to see and this important thing for us to see as we are convicted that that's the only way. But it doesn't stop there. The other side of that is that this agent of change, the one who's, who's ushering in the old kingdom into the new kingdom, that he is even now on the move. That the, the new kingdom is not something that is just future and far away. It is something that even now is breaking into the present. That Jesus is on the move. He is working. He is calling people to himself. He is using. He is, his death and resurrection are being manifested all around us. In the lives of his people and the things that they are up to. Jesus is on the move. And so as we have been invited by him into this new kingdom, what this becomes is a new identity for us. And that our lives are then characterized by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The self-giving up. The self-giving of himself um, for the sake of other people. Um, the pouring out of grace for those who are in need who can't help, help themselves. But we do it not in order to justify ourselves, but it's because who we are. You can sing family tradition in your head right now. Because that's, like, that's, that's what I've been humming to myself this week. Like, why do we do this? Why do we try to, you know, 
Why is our benevolence committee at work? Why are we trying to labor in order to love our city? It's because it's who we are. It's because that's what our leader did for us. That's what he's doing right now. And we do this oh so imperfectly. But we have Jesus who marches ahead of us into every sphere, into every dark place. And he calls us to follow him. And we imitate him like children. You know, like children do for, you know, I was telling a joke the other day. And one, I heard one of my kids tell the same joke to one of their siblings. Like, what was he trying to, he was trying to imitate me because he thought it was funny. Um, this, is what, this is what it's like to be a part um, of the people of God. And what that means for us at the end is that these things that we're trying to do are very complex. And I, I, I went round and around and around trying to, you know, provide answers for how do, how do we solve these things in our city? And how, what do we do when we encounter a homeless pe- person? Or, or, you know, how many things should we be involved in, you know, and all of these kinds of things. These are really big questions, and I don't know. I, I really don't know um, the answer to it. But if we're following Jesus, if he is the thing that characterizes our lives, rather than needing to distance ourselves from the complexity and from the difficulty, because it's going to find us wanting, because it will, it instead has the opposite effect, where it invites us into the complexity, not with answers, but with a whole lot less fear and with a whole lot less burden on our, sh- our shoulders of having to solve Um, everything um, uh, perfectly. We have a great big brother, Jesus, who came to us, um, who saved us, who redeemed us, and who didn't stop with us, who is on the move now. And he bids every one of us to come and follow him. And I just want to end with these, um, just a couple of um, points, uh, thoughts. If you feel convicted by this story and if, if this is just a fresh look at your own life of um, in, you know, indwelling self-centeredness um, and, you know, whatever it is that prevents um, um, this, you know, unconditional love for others. That the invitation here is not to shame, but it is to return back to your own Savior, Jesus. And to dwell in the depth of his love, um, the one, his Um, love that he poured out with all of his strength and his body and his mind and his soul uh, for us, his children, that we might be with him. But once we're there, the other thought is this, and that it, it is to, as we sit and we enjoy that love that he has given, it is also to do the same thing for those around us that he also loves. As that the call to come to Jesus is also the call to be in Jesus, um, to follow him wherever he goes to be free of our own efforts of self-justification and to feel that freedom in actually living into the work um, that Jesus has um, ahead of us. Those are two things. To return to him for our own justification, but in that, uh, to follow him um, into whatever, um, whoever it might be um, that, he, that he puts in our way. Um, that is a good call, and it is a tall call, and it is not something that we can do on our own power. So... Uh, I want to stop here and pray, and I would invite us all together that we would pray for ourselves and as a church um, that Jesus would continue to move in us and also through us uh, on his mission. Jesus, uh, that's the request we have for you today. I would thank you for your grace and for your mercy, and would you help us more and more to walk in light of that grace uh, rather than shame. But as we do that, would you give us um, in your spirit a a day by day, 
a bigger and a weightier love for those around us. Great, uh, more sharply seeing eyes that we might see the needs and more joy uh, to be able to jump in and love in the way that you do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.